Streaming live from Treaty 1 territory in the heartland of the Métis Nation, the place where the great waterways meet and the heart of Turtle Island, I'm excited to host the first newly launched Toronto podcast, where we find ourselves in the territory of Toronto under the treaty of a dish with one spoon and is home to some of the most diverse population in Canada. People are the heart of their communities. And this two-year curatorial theme for Nui Blanche Toronto will focus on the connections across urban, polar, Pacific landscapes, revealing the space between us as a potential site for sharing knowledge. I'm so excited to have these conversations with artists, elders, leaders, and scholars traveling around the planet, using the podcast, Belonging to Place, as a platform to expand on our complex histories into spaces that we live which could be the impetus for creative art making. I'm your host and artistic director, Julie Negum, and this is my first episode, A Home for Our Migrations. I'm really thrilled to get to chat with Toronto, Ontario-based artists, elder Dr. Duke Redbird, Shelley Nero, Michael Belmore, and Cheryl Laurendel about each of their relationships to place, the power of the land, and the cultural-based knowledge as they expand on their practices and importance of creating art for over decades. With over 3 million people living in the city of Toronto and another 3 million as part of the GTA, this episode will reflect on Indigenous artists' contributions to its living history, thinking about the importance of space and place within that territory. Nothing says it better than the poetic words of Elder Dr. Duke Redbird. The Mississauga Nation welcomed settlers from across the seas when they arrived in their territories. Such beauty revealed before their eyes was beyond their ability to describe. In all the languages that the settlers spoke, there were no words that could evoke. With any clarity, a single thought that Mother Nature's splendor brought. It was from the indigenous tongues that the settlers learned the language of the earth in all her idioms. Toronto, from Takaranto, trees standing in the water, a meeting place where small fish could gather. Nearby hills where alders grow, that was called Etobicoke. And in the autumn before the winter snows, the passenger pigeons rested in Mimico. And to the west, where the great waters flow, the lake and lands were called Ontario. Eagles soar high with prayers for Manitou. The Mississauga people smudge and launch their birch bark canoes. Three sisters, corn, bean, and squash. The planting season has begun. Tobacco is offered a gift to grandfather's son. Sage, sweetgrass, and cedar to grandmother moon. There is peace, joy, and harmony in the treaty lands called a dish with one spoon. It's about a treaty that was made between the Haudenosaunee people and the Anishinaabe people. The Haudenosaunee people are popularly known as the Iroquois, and the uh, Anishinaabe people are popularly known as the uh, Ojibwe's. And there was five nation Iroquois Confederacy and a Three Fires Confederacy of the Anishinaabe. And a treaty was made between our two peoples called a dish with one spoon. And it, it predated any uh, treaties that were ever made between the, uh, the settlers and uh, indigenous peoples. So because it's a, a pre-existing 
agreement between two peoples. It really shows how a good treaty is negotiated and how it comes about. So this is, the treaty was called a dish with one spoon. In Canada, in this part of the world, that represented a real meeting place. Immigration to Canada, in order to uh, pan out across the nation and even, even into the United States, funneled itself through Toronto. And there was an agreement, was called the, uh, the Toronto Purchase back in 1805 with the Mississauga people who are the uh, legitimate stewards of this land. And there was an agreement made that uh, that the land would be shared. But immediately, the uh, policymakers and, uh, and politicians came in with their pens and began to eliminate and stroke out and rewrite the original uh, notion that we would all share this area and as, uh, as a dish with one spoon and we would all have the same opportunity to the resources and uh, the beauty of these lands was supposed to be in, embedded in, in the treaty negotiations with the settlers. But like all treaties and anything that you can write, the stroke of a pen can, can uh, erase it and take it away. And so we have an opportunity now with this new technology, with the uh, click of a mouse, we can retrieve the original spirit of the shared land and we can redress the oppression that took place when the politicians and the lawyers and the policymakers got a hold of those agreements and wrote them down in their own language for their own uh, benefit. But now we have a new language and it's a language of technology that, that can uh, redress that and change it. And uh, no one is asking the settler population to leave, leave uh, these lands. All we're asking is that the uh, indigenous presence here be recognized as uh, full-fledged uh, contributors to confederation if that is what they want to do and have all the privileges associated with self-determination and self-governance. For a long time, I've been advocating that particular artworks narrate stories of place to creatively demonstrate an alternative cartography that challenges and contradicts myths of settlement situated in colonial narratives. Art can shed light on Indigenous peoples' relationships and experiences within cities such as Toronto. These artistic creative interventions serve as the archival material for critical investigation into Indigenous stories of place. I look at oral histories, archaeological artifacts, and artwork to construct alternative cartographies that are remapping of the land, which narrate these stories of place in cities such as Toronto. And as Michael explains on his relationship to Toronto. I think that Toronto is one of those places. And I think um, partly because I've done a lot of research and a lot of history, that it was a gathering place to move to somewhere else. So it is a contact point between where the land meets the water and an important one. Toronto is like when you're in a canoe and you're coming up to the beach and you are going to step out and you kind of want to step on the shore, but you end up stepping in the water. 
And it's that sort of bringing it up and bringing the front of the canoe up into the sand. I think Toronto is that kind of place. It is, in a sense, a, a landing spot or a place of transition from one existence into another. And I think that's what Toronto is and has become because in a way that it is, you know, the center of the universe or it is that place where, for me, um, growing up in Northern Ontario and applying to go to art school and then moving to Toronto was a game changer because I then became, I became another Instead of being the other, which in Thunder Bay or in small rural communities in Ontario or in Canada, uh, being First Nations, you are often the other. So it's, it's you know, it's for lack of words right now, uh, there's the white people and then there's the Indians in most small communities in this country. But in coming to Toronto, all of a sudden you become one of many others. And so being another allowed you a freedom to actually reflect on who you are, what you are, how you are different, how you are similar. And it gave that safety to be able to express that. So I think Toronto is very important that way because it's a rare place in this country. I just love the concept that Toronto is a transitional space. Similar to the canoe and water, for me, which couldn't be said more perfectly. How we mark and map out space is so fascinating, as each location has a particular set of histories and relationships that exist. For me, that exciting space is the intersectionality of creative, conceptual, and material geographies that are brought forth by many artists, and in particular, the ones that we're featuring. Because geography is about knowledge and the ways we know, which is a powerful process of colonization, exploration, and conquest. When you walk through the city of Toronto, there is a feeling that you know it has a deep and rich history steeped in an ancient trading route that continues to be felt today. With each footstep you take, you can feel the reverberations under your feet. Let's hear from Cheryl and her thoughts on space and place. Mm. Is Toronto an Indigenous space and how has it influenced the work? Um, definitely every space is an Indigenous space. Every place has an Indigenous name and has a, a soft footprint. I think that's the thing I was really impressed upon, that Valerie Green from the Mississaugas of the Credit River talked about that a couple of years ago. And that really did leave an impression on me about the notion that we don't leave uh, heavy footprints and our ancestors never left heavy footprints. So the presence, the Indigenous presence, sometimes is more a, a felt or a sensed presence and one has to be attuned to experience it, which is hence why it could be mistaken as a very sort of dominant cosmopolitan city but it's not. I think I've always felt something about language and realized that there's a relationship between language and place. It's like language um, is gauged by the land. You know, I used to poetically think about language in that way. So there is something about Toronto. And, and it, I've lived there um, several times. And it was in the 80s when I lived there that I had the real experience where I could see 
where I was, because you know Toronto's on such hills that go down towards the to the lake, that uh, the street corner I was on, which I think was Dundas and Ossington in the 80s, I realized I could see what this place had looked like, um, Gaias, Manakayas, a long, long time ago, before there were ever buildings, and you know just how beautiful it must have been, but. You know how everything led to the lake. Yes, Toronto is an indigenous space. The city of Toronto holds the memory of 10,000 years of history. Indigenous artists bring forth this knowledge in different artworks they create, and their connection to place is seen through their practice. In Shelley's work, this is very evident. This can be witnessed through the selection of the location of her work and who's seen in the frame. Shelley explains that place is important in her practice. I think in most of my work, that's how I feel that the work is inspired by my the place, where I am, where I come from, hopefully where I'm going. Some about memory, it's about paying honor to the people that came before me. And I always feel there's a strong connection between what I'm doing and um, how I'm using, using the material. So that's always been a very strong presence in the work. I'm a painter, a photographer. Um, sometimes I do sculpture. I, I use beadwork whenever I can. Um, I like to draw. I think it's just, um, you know, trying to stay busy, but liking the subject matter when I'm working on something. Sometimes I work on projects for years. And, you know, at first it used to bother me that it would take me years to finish something. But now I that doesn't really come into the equation. As long as I can keep working on it and then finish it at some point, I'm quite happy about that. My photography uses landscape. Sometimes it uses the figurative. Um, I've been using a lot of Photoshop and collage. And as long as I'm kind of excited about what I'm producing, I I will just keep working on that. But it's, you know, just stimulating your brain as you go along. So it's something that I really enjoy. For me, it's so amazing to think about each artist's process and their relationship with their own content and material. How each work tells a different story about place and the material that is used to create the final work. Um, I think for me, there's sort of a understanding of materials and there's a discussion amongst materials. Some of my earliest works that I produced um, as being trained as a, as a silversmith, working with materials, especially metals, I sort of learned that there's a history that comes with certain materials. And really, all materials have a history and have a voice. And so my practice has sort of become entering into a dialogue with materials within processes to add to the conversation. So, you know, steel has a certain history, especially European history. Copper has a history, both European and North American. You know, for First Nations people, we have a certain connection, especially amongst the Anishinaabe people of the Great Lakes, that there's a connection to copper, especially on the south shore of Lake Superior, uh, where it can be found naturally and was mined. So one of the things for me that's important is that this idea of the animate and the inanimate within Anishinaabe culture, and that idea that an object becomes alive and that we can invest in an object to make it alive. And 
or bring out its life, where there's a stone that's sitting on the ground and it's inanimate, but once you start to use it, say, I, one of my examples I always use is sort of like when uh, you're camping and it's pouring rain and you're setting up your tent and you know when you're trying to put the pegs into the ground and you're looking around and you pick up a rock and it's like and you start to pound in the peg into the ground and that rock doesn't work and for some reason that rock doesn't work and there's a relationship there's a discussion there's a conversation that happens between you the peg the rock and the earth and it's sort of that is a telling moment where all of a sudden you find another rock and you and you start hammering in the peg and it goes in fine and then there's a relationship there that works it's so true those relationships to land and objects that begin to explain how small we are as humans in this incredible land and waterscape I just chuckle when I think about camping out on the land and those objects speaking to you in a particular way and how this differs in the cityscape. How lost we can get into that built environment. How we lose touch with the relationship that Michael is explaining in his process. Making art, presenting art, creating works is about sort of making those connections, adding to those conversations and creating something that speaks beyond sort of just the materials themselves or the actions themselves. So um, often I want to work with rocks and work it with them the way that they are worked and unworked. So you can see the history of the rocks as far as their own experiences, but then I work into that conversation, my carving of the rocks so that you can, there's a glint or of how I enter that conversation. So, you know, um, for the rocks that I have now, uh, the rocks for this project, it's a glaciated erratic. It's a rock that has been worn down by glaciers, either through rolling underneath or the rivers that flow under them. They basically have, this rock has had a long life and has moved and traveled and has experienced things well beyond us. We are just a small little glint into its existence. And to think about these rocks also in the sense that this is their solid state. This is the state that we recognize them in. But to imagine that these rocks were once in the ground, once below the ground, once actually liquid, actually what we call lava, molten, that it actually was like water before. It has a history that it has a memory of being liquid and so having that relationship in that discussion with water, glacial flow, erosion, rivers washing against it, wearing it down, that is only a small part of its long conversation that is so millions of years old that, you know, I'm just trying to add to that conversation. And that conversation is more about us, our industry, our changing of the landscape and how we exist on this landscape. Yeah, I'll stop there for a moment. <laughs> Our ability to read the land and experience what memory holds is a gift. And to translate that knowledge into a visual culture that a larger audience can read is an opportunity that most artists are striving for. The importance of which bodies and stories are seen and heard impact our society as a whole. Concepts of gender, race, sexuality, ability are just some of the narratives that are experienced in Shelley Nero's work. 
These relationships between the matriarchal lineage are so beautifully demonstrated in your visuals. Shelly, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I initially wanted a strong female presence in my work because I always thought it was important to um, for that to be kind of the impetus of the work. And it's, uh, you know, making sure that the female presence is there. And it's um, even my mom, my sisters, and um, my mom's relatives. And just trying to show that, it, you know, for myself it's important to have those um, people there and and my daughters. So I always have them in the work, not always, but, you know, most often I've, I've always used uh, my sisters and my, my kids and my mom and my work and my photography work anyways. I'm just so excited to experience your new augmented work from your series Toys R Us for Nuit Blanche 2020 virtual exhibition. When we looked at the images for this year, I laughed so hard at this image and thought it was the perfect one for Nui in your neighborhood. That piece is called Everybody Got Mad. It's from um, a series called Toys R Us. And uh, I had these figurines for years. I, I bought them at this toy store that was going out of business. But I was really impressed by the, the way these things are sculpted and how, you know, the artist put facial expressions on these guys and they have muscles, but they're like just maybe 10 inches tall and they're plastic. So, you know, they're toys, but you know, I, I really like them. And then when I started using them in the, in the small series that I made from them, it's like, yeah, you can do a lot with them. Cause there's uh, that one is called everybody got mad. And there's one called Mr. Ambidextrous. He's holding a knife and a tomahawk and he you know, looks like he's going to go to town on something. And then there's another one called the dimpled one. So this guy is uh, hes kind of jumping up and down. I think he has a tomahawk on his hand, but he's got these profound dimples on his face. And um, the other one is called the show-off. And I have him walking on a tightrope going, you know, just just uh, sort of balancing along the way. Okay, what else? Oh, and then there's another one called A Day at the Beach. So I have three of these guys and they're behind these figurines of women that are in bathing suits just kind of nonchalantly lying around and you know it's just like uh, juxtaposing those those two elements together and it's it's kind of funny and uh and if you look right if you want to you can get you know a little bit afraid about what these guys are going to do to these women at the beach <laughs> that's another story <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so jacked for the virtual Nui, especially excited to showcase this new AR and VR works. As a digital media artist, I love the experience and experimentation that media can give you. Technology is a tool that gifts us with unlimited possibilities, especially in our current climate. We're even more reliant on the digital. As I know, Cheryl will be able to expand on this relationship to the technological. Well, I think the thing about technology that's always interested me is that we have words in our languages to talk about inventiveness. So if we have words in our languages that can really um, define and articulate what technology does, then you know that we 
we also always had a sense of technology around us. If you think of when our ancestors discovered that there was a certain bone on a moose that was a hard, hard bone and could be filed down to make a really good blade for, you know, cleaning hides, for instance, or when they realized that a certain sinew in an animal could be dried and made into a fine thread. You know, I mean, this these is all technology. Um, the fact that our ancestors knew that sound carried and that sound was eternal. Um, the fact that our ancestors, um, you know, understood it because of that, just the power of a drum, not just as a musical instrument, but as something that was a device um, and then probably one of the best examples of old to new technology is probably the winter count, where uh, that was a historical sort of mnemonic device to relay a history of, of, a, of a people. And, you know, it was it's multimedia. It's three dimensional, even though, you know, you might look at it and go, it's flat. It's not meant to be hung on a wall. It's not meant to be framed. And there's no vantage point, which is better than another vantage point, which also makes it immersive, where we're all, as we witness the telling of this winter count, you know, we're all implicated in the read, the translation, and also the animation of it. We're making it animated by all experiencing it. So I think that the only thing we didn't have is we didn't plug things into walls at the time. And there's even stories about that. There's um, some prophecies about some of our seers who used to see the coming of electricity. And they used to call it Thunderbird Fire. So, you know, there's this notion that they understood that it it was like a flash of lightning, but it, it carried through these ribbons, you know. There's some great stories about that. So I think that there's a, there's a comfort level that we should have with technology. And when we started making projects where the kids would actually see their grandparents on the screen, they were quite happy. You know, they were willing to engage with the technology and realize that it can help to carry our visions. Because as Indigenous people, we are people who dream. And so much of this technology cre can create sort of also dream-like scapes or dreamscapes that, um, you know, that, you know, where did, where did the idea come came from it came from your mind you know it came or it came from a dream or it came from an idea or it came from a daydream you know <clears throat> so i think it's that in that way as well it's also sort of conceptually it's not irrelevant to us or foreign i mean part of the some of the big problems that also continue to happen is that it doesn't happen in toronto but it happens on so many reserves where they have really low bandwidth so there is an inequity, you know, there's still an inequity in uh, equal, equal availability and access to technology. I couldn't agree with you more, Cheryl. It's difficult with the unequal distribution of wealth and access to tools of technology and what it has to offer. At the same time, it's exciting to play with technology, shifting those imbalances to produce work that can radically change people's perceptions. Cheryl, your new work, the Beauty Within is created from your past experiences working with Indigenous women in incarceration, as many Indigenous people fill much of those spaces. The new work is 
in honor of some women who I co-wrote a song with at Pine Grove Correctional Center in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Um, the song is called The Beauty Within. And uh, around the time that I was um, wanting to make the work, I I was thinking about um, another project where somebody was proposing a 360 panorama uh, video. And um, they didn't like my idea. And my idea was that um, I really wanted the beginning of the uh, 360 to be really abstract. I wanted it to be the sense that sort of an impossible place, you know, a place where how could the viewer ever be there? And that was to be like uh, have skirts, women's skirts, like right, right there. So, you know, you're, it would be kind of almost disturbing to be so close to having these women dancing around you, doing round outs, wearing ribbon skirts and dancing around. But I really, I, there was something I really liked about that sort of sensory uh, envelopment. Um, and then serendipitously, right around that time, I went to visit um, the um, knowledge keeper, Maria Campbell, the author of Half Breed and, and so many other, um, so many other books and essays and plays. Um, and she told me a story. She related a story to me about uh, the Métis kitchen table, about um, multi-purpose uses of the table. And, and it's it's a long story to go into. And But suffice it to say, it sort of validated my idea about having these skirts so close, about having this notion of being inside, um, inside and very enclosed and very safe inside a, a space. And, and that works with the song because the song lyrics say uh, the hook line of the song is the beauty within shall shine forever. And really that's a sort of double entendre because we're talking about the women. The women are inside and they are the beauties um, and they shall shine forever. But it's also about with, within each and every one of us. You know, there's a beauty within us and it shall shine forever. So what happens in the VR piece is that it is in a, a an enclosed feeling space. And if we didn't have a pandemic on, um, I would actually construct a space that you'd have to get into um, because I think that would be really interesting to sort of remove some of the wide open spaces around and make somebody be in a small uh, sort of concealed feeling space or safe feelings, refuge space. The amazing thing about VR and AR is it creates an environment for you to experience, to place work where you want to. It's totally immersive, which can entirely alter people's environment. But what happens in the VR is that um, you realize when you put the headset on or when you put a Google Cardboard on, if you've, if you've got them, um, that, you know, looking up and around you, you realize that you are in an enclosed space. And... Um, you know, the, there's feet dancing around you and looking up, there's a drum above you that's being beat. So you're underneath a drum um, and it's not a big drum. Um, and, um, you know, there, and then there's this fabric that is sort of moving around you, swishing around you. And there's this lovely yellow kind of, or kind of glow off of the fabric. So when you look down and look right down, I mean, unfortunately, you can't see your own feet, but... What you do see is you see a, a, an animated flame. And, and it's really to say that, you know, you are that. You know, the song is being sung for you. It's, it's your place of re refuge. 
it's your place to to be the beauty within. I mean, some of the choices we made when we were making it was, there was a, something lovely about the sort of dream quality to some of the, um, the way we stitched some of the things together. And then finally, um, the if you, you can just glimpse um, teepees, uh, a teepee that's just beyond where the where the women, uh, the four women are are dancing, and um, and that's kind of a little bit of a nod to uh, a sneak preview of what what is to come um, with uh, the the next project you guys will see from me. <laughs> I know, Cheryl, I think the transformation we have planned for City Hall in 2021 will be pretty awesome. And I'm super hopeful that we'll get to gather in public space again. When we think about our current environment, it's difficult to not think about coronavirus and how this has been impacting everybody. I leave it to Duke to lead us through his process of dissecting our current climate. And I think that there are more and more people realizing that if they want a full, uh, enriched uh, perspective on the universe in which they live, they have to come to an accommodation of Indigenous thought and philosophy, particularly where it involves nature and the land itself. Because one thing that the dominant culture learned very quickly with this virus is that nature can produce a virus you can't even see and bring down the entire social economic structure of the uh, of so-called superior uh, dominant culture. They were stopped in their tracks. They had to come around and incorporate ideas that were indigenous in the, in the beginning, which was one is a guaranteed annual income because we always had a guaranteed annual income from nature. Nature provided us with a guaranteed annual income. People don't seem to realize that there was no homeless indigenous people before the settlers arrived. We weren't uh, denied anything uh, necessary to live comfortably in a society that fulfilled the self-preservation and romance of the arts and family and everything. That was all part of our reality before contact. All the contact did was it brought in money and, and institutions of power and the ability with the stroke of a pen to limit the liberties of other people who were entitled to the same relationship with nature. And uh, had we chosen to become technologically literate, if you like, or, or technically, if that had been our desire, we would have done it because we always had the choice to do it, like like any human being on Earth has these choices. When they uh, are born, they have choices. It's just that the Judeo-Christian, Roman Greco culture of Western Europe took a path that they chose, but we didn't choose that path over here, and now we see that as a result of the uh, Westernization of the world, and that culture has created real damage to the environment and is affecting climate change. And uh, if we do not retrieve that old relationship we had with the earth as human beings with the different perspective, we need to see a world where 
We acquire status not by how much we can acquire and build for ourselves, but rather by how much we can contribute and, and give. And when, when we can change the mindset of people where you get up in the morning realizing that your status as a, as a human being in this world depends more on your capacity for kindness, compassion, uh, uh, helping your fellow uh, human and, and so on, as opposed to this other side, which seems to be competitive and every person for themselves at the expense of everybody else. This is uh, progressive thinking and it comes right from the indigenous uh, philosophy. A dish with one spoon, in other words. When we imagine this world that returns to Indigenous philosophies, I can only imagine how much our world could shift into a better and more respectful way of working together and our relationship with the natural world. If we bothered to listen to the land, we could hear the song it's trying to sing us. It's explaining to us how to think and how to live better in balance. At the same time, we are forced to stay at home and becoming more introspective on how we are living our lives. When I think about this, I'm inspired by Michael's words about the long life a rock lives and how it transforms over time. I feel like this is our starting point and hopefully we can remember to think about this as we continue to move forward. Um, I have to live with the stone. Uh, there's a dialogue between you and the stone. There is a lot of back and forth conversations. Um, I am very material based. You know, I pick the hardest stones to carve. So I are basically almost all granite. And it's labor intensive. It hurts the body. And part of that for me is similar to like when I do the copper pieces, so that I have these series of copper works that I've done over the years, and it was sort of coming from jewelry where I was hammering uh, metal, and then I started to think about sort of the idea of watersheds and waterways, and then I wanted to use a material that could speak to the ideas of what is the value of landscape, or what is the value of land. And so I started to hammer these watersheds so the copper could work as sort of the idea of um, I could hammer lakes and rivers. And as I hammered the lakes and rivers, um, the, the places I didn't hammer would rise up. And so it sort of created these sort of topographical forms that uh, are reminiscent of land. So it speaks about the idea of how we impact landscape, because what I'm doing is hammering the water, which informs the land. And then... In a way, it's they're maps, but they're accurate. Can you imagine, like how a sand beach is created by waves just hitting the shore? And it's like those were rocks. There were rocks that were broken down and broken down and broken down and broken down and broken down. And it's like it's such a interesting process of how you know to imagine that process and and to think about how long that conversation happened and how we are part of that and how we are making changes and we are basically going in blind because we're not having those long discussions because we're incapable of having those long discussions because, you know, we don't live very long as a, as a species compared to the other materials that I'm talking about. You know, do you think about how water has traveled from one place and has made it back to the same place again? Like how many thousands of years and 
how far it had to go to get back to the same place again, or if that was ever even possible. We're small, basically. I feel like thinking about how small humans are in the vastness of our natural environment over the millions of years is a beautiful place to leave you. Contemplating our relationship to land and belonging to place. So I guess I'll leave it there then. Thanks so much for listening. I would love to say chimigwich, marci, and thank you to all the people that make this podcast possible. And tune in again for Nui's Belonging to Place. Oh, oh, oh.